Well, it's been an interesting week, to say the least, in, uh, in the United States. Many of you probably heard that something happened in the United States this past week that has not happened in its over 200-year history. Never, ever, ever since the United States was founded has there been a security breach of the magnitude that we witnessed this week on the U.S. Supreme Court. Someone, probably a lower-ranking staffer, leaked the news that the court was considering overturning the landmark abortion rights case, Roe v. Wade. This is shocking, really. (laughs) Roe v. Wade was a case that actually happened on the year I was born, 1973. So my, my entire life in Canada here, south of the border, Roe v. Wade has been in effect. And that landmark case made abortion rights essentially legal in the United States. And by God's grace, he is obviously stirring the judiciary in that country. And there's a pretty good chance that Roe v. Wade very well might be overturned. That really is shocking news, folks. If you understand the, the history of the abortion rights movement, this, this is shocking in a good way, shocking news. But there were, was also some, there were also some other things that I found shocking this week, and that is, as you observed, pro-abortionists react to this news. It really was quite stunning. Elizabeth Warren, one of the U.S. senators, you may have seen her on a video, just furious, almost, she looked like she was demon-possessed, frankly, walking through a garden just absolutely furious to the core of her being that the U.S. Supreme Court was considering overturning Roe v. Wade. And as I, as I watched her conduct, it literally crossed my mind, this woman to me looks like she's demon-possessed. That's literally what was on my mind. And as you compare that to all the other godless acts that we're seeing in our country, it's easy to become very angry, maybe even bitter, maybe even hateful towards people that would want to abort our children or introduce other forms of perversion to our culture. But then you step back, and as you read scripture, you encounter story after story of heinous people whose lives have been overturned by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you think, you know what? I need to settle down a little bit. Because as much as I should be angry with evil in our world, the fact of the matter is, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ can change women like Elizabeth Warren. You know, there's been many situations throughout history where people that the world probably would have written off, thought of as unredeemable, have been radically altered by the Lord Jesus Christ. What can change people from the inside out? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes in church, we assume, well, the gospel can change people that have been a little bit bad, but maybe there's a line where when you you become a serial killer, I don't know about that. Do you remember the story of David Berkowitz, the son of Sam? We know he murdered at least six people. I think he started something like 2,000 fires He probably murdered many more. A serial killer of heinous proportions that actually came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and whose life was transformed by the gospel. It's it's an incredible story. God's gospel can actually change the world. 
And this is why we're committed to fighting against injustice, but we're also committed to preaching the full gospel of Jesus Christ. And if the world is going to find hope and healing, we need to get the gospel right and make sure that we're preaching it as a gospel of grace that literally can transform anyone. So if you doubt the power of the gospel, you actually doubt the power of God. In the book of Galatians, Paul continued to preach the gospel, continued to correct those that would, ha- would potentially pervert the gospel because he had an optimistic outlook of the gospel's power to transform people. And you know what? He had an optimistic outlook because he assessed his own life and realized how much God had done for him. What was Paul's occupation, by the way, prior to being a Christian? He was a Christian killer. He didn't literally kill anyone with his own hands, but he, he was the guy that was sent out by the Pharisees, Pharisees to lead the posses that would ultimately capitally execute Christians. I, I suspect that if I said to you, hey, let me share my testimony, I used to kill people, that some of you might be mildly uncomfortable attending this church. I mean, some of you might be like, well, that's kind of cool, but I'm, I'm not going to mess with him. But the, the idea that God, one of God's choice apostles in all of human history, used to preside over the execution of God's people, but then was arrested by grace and transformed by God, that's a pretty hope-filled message. So as we enter back into the book of Galatians, and I've entitled this message, A Gospel Sourced in God, what we're going to see is a whole lot of grace and mercy shine through the text. The gospel we're going to learn can transform anybody from the serial killer right through to the abortionist. The gospel can transform anybody. And so while we don't expect that everyone is going to be saved and transformed, there is always optimism in Christian ministry. We preach, we teach, we advocate for the lordship of Christ. We call people to faith because we know God can and often does transform lives. Could we say amen together to that? We believe this. So we're not down in the dumps. We're not in a slump. We get get angry rightly as Jesus did it in justice in the world, but we also stay true to our mission to preach the gospel. The gospel changes people. Corrupt gospels, on the other hand, we're going to be reminded are powerless. Corrupt gospels, false religions, they do have the power to change and modify behavior. We get that. A lot of religions in the world, you could sign up for those religions and you will learn to correct some of your behavior. But the gospel transforms you from the inside out. You're literally spiritually rebirthed through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you want true life change or you know someone that needs true life change, you need to preach the gospel. You need to surrender your life to the gospel. Last week, we looked at Galatians chapter 1 verses 1 to 10. This week, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24. Now, this comes on the heels of Paul's warning to the Galatian church not to corrupt the gospel. Remember, he warned them, if you preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, you're going to be eternally damned. That was the word there. We studied the word anathema. So this comes on the tail end of that warning. And in verse 10, which was the last verse of the previous passage, we also remember that he issued a bit of a personal defense that says, I'm not a people pleaser. 
One of the greatest hindrances to gospel proclamation is worrying what everyone's going to think. Paul's like, I ain't no people pleaser. I speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Every Christian, by the way, should be able to say that. My life's an open book. I'm the real deal. I'm not perfect, but I'm the real deal. Your kids should acknowledge that. Your neighbors should acknowledge that. Your banker should acknowledge that. Even if they don't like what you happen to believe or say, every one of us should be able to stand in public preaching the gospel and saying, I'm not claiming to be perfect, but I actually believe this stuff. I'm actually seeking to live out this stuff. When I fail, I repent, not perfect, but I actually believe this stuff. Paul was motivated by conviction. Conviction is the step beyond knowledge. Knowledge is like, yeah, I know, I know about the gospel. And lots of Christians know the gospel, but what the world needs to see more of is conviction. That I actually have founded and staked my life on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The facts are the facts. And I'm not seeking your approval. I don't need a pat on the back from you. I don't need you to agree with me. If you do, that's great. But I know I'm approved by God. That should be the mindset and the attitude that we bring to any gospel-centered conversation. And it's, by the way, a lot more freeing to live your life seeking to please the Lord than seeking to please everybody given the broad array of opinions that people have about religious matters. All right, so what we're going to do, we're going to break this passage down into basically five pieces. So four facts about the gospel and, and then one kind of encouragement to send you off into the next week. But I want to say this right up front. As we study this text, what I want you to be noticing is how much grace is intrinsically included in this passage. All through the passage, we're going to look at some theological concepts here about the nature of revelation and the nature of apostleship and so forth. But all of it hinges on this idea of grace. The gospel really is of God, from God, for God. It's not from you. It's not from me. It's not concocted. It's not made up. We have been granted this beautiful message, this beautiful opportunity to repent and receive Christ as our Savior based upon the grace of God. Why do I mention that in a Christian church when most of you do agree with the fact that God is incredibly gracious? Because even after we're saved, even after we're born again, even after we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the temptation as we clean up our lives is to kind of subtly start to take some credit for it. Well, I made the decision. I showed up at church at the right time. I recognized my own sin. It was kind of me. I, I, I chose to trust in Jesus Christ on such and such a date. This is called decisional regeneration, which I reject. When you make a decision to accept Christ as your Savior, God has already decided to save you. In fact, when you repent, did you know biblically that when you repent, God's already justified you? You don't have the capacity to even repent unless God has already made you new from the inside out, even though it may happen a microsecond later. So all of this teaching is going to be grounded in this purest biblical principle that salvation, that the gospel is solely founded, grounded, rooted in the radical, undeserved grace of God. Never try to take credit in any way, shape, or form for your salvation. It's all of God. Paul teaches this very clearly. So we're going to start off 
looking at verses 11 and 12. Again, this is Galatians chapter one, verses 11 and 12. And here we're gonna learn that the gospel is sourced exclusively in divine revelation. The gospel is sourced exclusively in divine revelation. The word of God, the gospel, is not voted on by pastors or popes. It's not another philosophy that somebody was sitting around in a lotus position and made up. Its source is God. There's, there's lots of knowledge in the world to be accessed. But Western people often don't think about a, a kind of knowledge that historic peoples recognized and that the Bible advocates for, and that is revelation. So you can, you can live your life in this world and you see certain things, you smell certain things, you hear certain things, you taste certain things, you touch certain things, and you know them to be true. Or you run complex equations, mathematical equations, scientific equations, and you come to a truism. But there's a kind of knowledge that comes from outside of the world into the world, and it's called revelation. It's a different kind of knowledge. It's pure, and it's from the very mind and heart of God. Listen to this. For I would have you know, brothers, so he's speaking to Christians, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He refers to brothers. So while he is chastising the Galatian church, we learn here that they are not without hope. He had not yet written them off as false brothers. They were starting to err. It's possible for Christians to start to err and fall into false teaching. But at this point, they weren't heretics. They weren't apostates. They were still bona fide members of the Christian church. So he refers to them as brothers. And he references the source of the gospel. We often focus on the content of the gospel, which is important, but the source of the gospel is not man. The source of the gospel is not your denomination. The source of the gospel is not your church. It's not your clergyman. The gospel ultimately was delivered through apostolic, two apostolic or prophetic figures who then delivered it to the church. It's, it's a message that is beyond this world. Now, one of the interesting evidences of that is if you study man-made religions, you'll notice they kind of all sound sort of similar. I mean, you may wear different garb in order to identify with a particular religion. You speak different words. You may call your God by various names. But man-made religions, if I could just summarize it this way, are very simplistic in their assessment of us, but very complex in their practice. Very complex in their practice. So when I mean simplistic, they will say, okay, you have a problem, sin, you're a sinner, you're whatever language they might use, you've violated the eternal decrees of the Almighty, or you've you're not fully enlightened yet. A lot of Eastern religions talk about enlightenment. So they have a sort of a simplistic assessment. You have a problem. And then the solution to that is always complex. So you got to do this, 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 this. All these religious practices are suddenly brought to bear 
And if, you, if you're committed to those enough, then all these complex practices will solve your simple problem, which is somehow ticking off or offending deity. But biblical Christianity is kind of the opposite. The gospel is actually complex in its assessment of man. It says you're totally depraved. You're unable to reach out to God. Even Romans chapter three, verses 10 and 11, it says, no one seeks after God. Many years ago, there was kind of a movement moving through Christianity called the seeker-sensitive movement. Some of you might remember that. And I appreciated much about the seeker-sensitive movement because one of the things that was good about that is it was sort of like, hey, we should probably update a little bit the way we do church. Like, it's okay to sing some modern music. People don't have to wear suit and tie to come to church. You know, you should be friendly and welcoming and not assume that everybody has a Christian background. So there was some good things that came out of the seeker-sensitive movement, but the, the, the language used to describe it was terrible because the Bible tells us explicitly, we don't, by nature, seek after God. We don't. We are rebels. We are depraved. We are more wicked than we even think. Even the good things that we do are motivated by sinful deeds. I, I know of a lot of Christians that have this notion, we're sort of spiritually neutral then we sin, we do some bad things, but you know, more or less, I'm a good person. You've probably heard people say this all the time as you're sharing the gospel. I'm a good person because they're comparing themselves to others, not to scripture, not to God's assessment. We are worse off than we think. The Bible says, it presents a very dark picture of fallen humanity apart from Christ. So it has a complex assessment of man, but a simple salvation message. You can't do it. You can't cut it. No amount of baptismal water, church attendance, communion, charitable giving, nice deeds, or reading your Bible can save you. So what's the answer? Trust exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation, and you will be saved. Oh, that's too easy. Well, it is hard to believe in many respects because we have this desire to somehow work our way back into God's good graces, but it's what the scripture teaches. And the reason why we react to it is because it doesn't make sense in the human order to preach a message like that. In every other area of life, if I do something bad at work, if I offend my wife, if I'm in trouble with the law, I gotta do something to make it right, but that's not the gospel message. The gospel message is trusting in what Christ has done in him alone. And it's, it's, it's further proof that the gospel comes directly from God. It doesn't make sense from a human perspective. It's revealed by God's grace to the prophets and apostles of old. And when we are humbled and we repent and we surrender ourselves to it, our lives literally are transformed. Here's a wonderful passage of the transformative power of the gospel. Found in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. Many of you who, who have been in church for a while probably have heard this, this verse. It says, for the word of God, including the gospel, is living and active. It's not just true. A lot of things are true. Birds fly south in the winter, true. There's a lot of things that are true. Two plus two equals four. Okay, that's true doesn't necessarily transform you. But the word of God 
is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God literally penetrates us and changes us from the inside out. Real quick, back in October of 1979, I was sitting in a gospel meeting as a, as a young boy, and I was overwhelmed with an acknowledgement of my own sin. I was like, oh my, I am lost. I have offended God. And I went home and I was down in my basement, my bedroom, and I was crying and wondering what in the world am I gonna do? And my mom came in and she said, Aaron, what's wrong? And I explained to her, mom, I know I'm lost. I know I've offended God, but I don't know what to do. And I've told this story before. She gave me an illustration. I knew right away it was a spiritual illustration, but she said, imagine there was a big chasm between you and God and there was two bridges that you could take to get to God. One was a rickety little bridge with rotten ropes and broken boards. And the other was made out of concrete, reinforced steel. And you could see it touch down solidly on the other side. She said, which bridge would you take to get to the other side? And you know what I did? I did the same thing that every false religion does. I thought there was a trick to it. I gotta do something crazy here. So I said, I'm at, I would take the broken bridge. And she said, Aaron, the broken bridge represents the ways of the world. You will never get to God by following the ways of the world. And that it was like a light went on. It's like, you, it's like this room was pitch black and suddenly you turned a light on and I realized it was all by grace there's no trickery to the gospel. And that was the moment of my conversion. It was October the 6th, 1979, about 8 p.m. at night. And I know that's when I was converted. Well, this is, this is the gospel message. That this, is an, this was my, my experience of the living, active, breathing word of God, discerning the hearts, discerning the thoughts and intentions of my heart and transforming me. Revelation is supernatural. It is unknown and unknowable until God reveals it to us. It has the power to transform us and it's living and active. This is why serial killers can become born again Christians. This is why abortionists can become born again Christians. This is why, because it's not our religious effort. It's God's transformative grace who transformed this despicable man named Saul, who was killing Christians, into a choice servant of God. I don't know who God has in his sights to save, but I know when I look at someone that's ranting and raving because abortion rights might be overturned, I know without question that God can save that woman. And we need to pray that he will. And he can save all of the tyrants in the world and bring about revival. Now, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. He might come back really, really soon, or it might be a while. Everyone, every generation kind of thinks it's definitely gonna happen now, <laughs> which is a good mindset. We don't ultimately know. But we shouldn't just sit down on our hands and say, clearly it's happening now. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Remember all the revivals that God has wrought throughout history. And he could do it now. It might be a long time before Jesus is coming back. We don't know. But in the meanwhile, we're gonna be faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that he can and will continue to transform people's lives. And you know it. 
the worse the circumstances are in this world, the more likely people are to be kind of looking around thinking, okay, something's wrong. So God uses the worst of this world to bring about heaven's best. And we're thankful for that. The gospel transforms us. Here's the second thing. The gospel transforms us from God's enemies to God's friends. Not from God's enemies to, okay, you have a pardon, but don't ever talk to me again. But the gospel actually transforms us from God's enemies to God's friends. Now, as I read these next couple of verses, what would be really awesome is for you to hear your name in the description that's being given here. So read your name into it. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. This is Paul speaking, but think of your former life. Think of where you came from. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. It's like, I want the right to abort children. That's zealous. Paul was equally zealous in his persecution of the church. He wanted the church eradicated, but God transformed him. His frenzied anger, his venomous approach to the gospel of Jesus Christ was solved when God invaded his life. He was more zealous than his peers. He was a fanatic. But God transformed him by grace. You know, as we, as we collectively rehearse our past sins among Christian people, we are composed of people who are former murderers, adulterers, fornicators, liars, thieves, cowards, con artists, drug addicts, alcoholics, atheists, and more. And yet God has transformed us by his gospel. Romans chapter 5, 10 says, for while, listen to this, this is so beautiful. Folks, if you're tempted to take any cred for your faith, listen carefully. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. In the moment of being his enemies, God saved us. Not, well, I stopped being his enemy and I kind of became Swiss for a while, you know, neutral on everything. And then God saved me. It's like, well, you, you used to be a murderer. I want you to take a year off and then I'll think about saving you. You used to lie a lot. Could you maybe stop that for six months and then maybe I'll invade your life? No, it was in the process of sinning against God that God invaded our lives and he saved us. We're not like this. I'm sure all of you at some point have been deeply wounded and offended by someone. And then by grace and mercy, the person came and they asked for your forgiveness. And if you're anything like me, you probably thought, wasn't expecting that. I'd like to forgive you, but I'm not really sure I'm ever going to speak with you again. The offense was too deep, too vile. So, okay, we can call a truce, but there's, there's not going to be any relationship anymore. But that's not how God rolls. 
God transformed us from enemy to friend, from enemy to an heir of his kingdom and kingdom values. This is how radical, radically transformative the gospel is. The gospel doesn't teach us, hey, you clean up your life and then I'll think about saving you. Clean up your life and you'll be fine. It's an invitation to defect from the world's army and actually join God's army and serve him and be useful to him. God changes our status. God can change the status of the kind old grandma who nevertheless has sinned and offended God to again, the David Berkowitzes of the world, the Elizabeth Warrens of the world, the murderers, the tyrants, those seemingly outside of God's grace. We all can and must be spiritually regenerated. Now, when you understand this, you know what it does? It revs up your worship. Revs up your worship. Maybe you've been coming to church and you're like, yeah, God saved me. But you're hearing this and you're like, wow. I never really thought about how deeply he has saved me. Never really thought much about how rebellious I actually was. How much of a little stinker I was. How, how wicked I was. Like, why, why do we have to talk about this? It makes me feel bad. It's not meant to make you feel bad if you've been saved. It's meant to rev up your worship. When you're singing those songs on the screen and you see the word grace, it's like, wow, mind-boggling. Have you ever had like great thoughts of God? I've had this experience where I'm thinking about God's grace and grandeur. And it almost feels like my brain is sort of like maxing out on the inside of my skull. Like I want to think greater thoughts, but it sort of maxed itself out because I'm so overwhelmed by God's grace and mercy. That energizes and informs our worship. This is why we say we want to be vertical worshipers, attributing every aspect of God's grace to God, never taking credit for it. And it also solves the problem that we might have at times of taking a little bit of credit for our conversion. This can be a problem too. Like, well, tell me, how did you become a Christian? Well, you know, I was kind of a bad person and God sort of invaded my life and I was listening to a sermon and I got it. I did this and I did that and... I chose to do this and I chose, I know you're, obviously God is working in your life as a human being. You're choosing, you're making decisions, your mind is working, you're not like a robot. But behind the scenes, you realize it was all God, inspiring, energizing, bringing about, transforming. And you're like, yeah, I'm not taking any credit for it. I may be better off because of what God has done than a lost person, but I'm not better than a lost person by nature. So all the credit, all the glory goes to God. It leads to extreme gratitude. Behind the scenes, we also learn that sovereign grace gets the credit, not us. This is a, this is a, a truth that also emphasizes and highlights grace. So Paul, Paul acknowledges that even before he was born, God was already at work to save him. He says in verse 15, <clears throat> But when he who had set me apart, what's the timing? Before I was born. Before I was born. Who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Several things there. The sovereign grace of God in action before the world began. 
This is a Christian doctrine. For some reason, some people feel uncomfortable with that. I'm not sure why. It's beautiful. It highlights grace. Before the world even started, God set his sights on you. He knew you by name. It's a beautiful thing. It began a process leading to your conversion. He called you by grace. He revealed his son to me. But then Paul understood once he had had the, the gospel revealed to him, he needed to do something with it. He needed to get on mission with God. It wasn't enough to say, finally, it's October 1979. I'm saved. Now I can do what I want. God saved me for a purpose so that I could preach the gospel to you, to others, so they could in turn preach the gospel to others, so that I could be on mission with God. This passage demands a high view of the sovereignty of God, and it demands that you stop taking credit for your own conversion. It demands that you give God the honor and the glory. It demands that we acknowledge that God set his sights on us before we were even born, before we decided, before we were even interested. It demands that we acknowledge that salvation is all of his grace and pleasure. And it demands that we acknowledge that salvation leads to an assignment, a purpose, to be on mission to accomplish the purposes and plans of God. Paul's mission was specific. Some of the apostles were called to minister primarily to the Jews. Paul's mission was to extend the gospel into Gentile territory. Now, interestingly, when Paul did that, most of the early churches were actually composed, the the, the core group were actually Jews living in Gentile territory. So that was a strategic move. He'd go into a town and he'd realize, okay, there's some Jewish people here who already affirm, for example, the old covenant scriptures. So I'm gonna start with them and he'd plant a church. But eventually they would reach Gentile people groups in Philippi and Ephesus and Corinth, et cetera. Do you know what your assignment is? Have you thought about it? Your assignment is not to come and listen to me every week and watch me do ministry. Your assignment is not to say to your husband or wife, well, you do the ministry, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of the property. Each of us has an assignment given to us by God. And a new Christian, we understand, probably won't know what that assignment is. We're still trying to figure it out. But once you've been a Christian for a while, you should know what are your spiritual gifts and what is God's unique calling for you? Maybe you're an encourager. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you're a servant. Maybe you're an administrator. Each of us has spiritual gifts given to us by God that we are to use for Christian ministry. When I was about 18 years old, I realized I'd just been filling a seat for the most part in church. So I'm like, I want to serve. So I just started serving in different areas. And what I learned is certain areas of service charged my battery and certain ones just wore me out. And that was a bit of an indicator, but where I was gifted, not gifted. And then I would look for spiritual fruit. Like, do people seem to be being blessed by me serving in this area or this area or this area? As you serve broadly, over time, the Lord will work in your heart and you'll be like, aha, now I know what God, God's assignment is for me. And we all have a different assignment. We don't need everybody in this church to work with kids. We don't need everyone in the church to be a preacher. We don't need everyone in this church to be a parking lot attendant. There's all different areas that we can serve in to bring glory and honor to the Lord. But each of us is called to open our mouths and proclaim the gospel. When that happens, when we stop being AWOL and we're on duty for the Lord, 
again, we're charged up. Our batteries are charged up. We bear fruit for the honor and glory of God. Serving the Lord is such a blessing. When, we're get, when we get saved, it satisfies us with hope, but joy really starts to erupt in your life when you learn to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because serving the Lord is living out the gospel. It's saying how thankful I am for what you've done, Lord. It's living out the gospel. It ignites the work of the Spirit in our lives by acknowledging his presence and his sovereignty. So just to be clear, we are saved by faith alone in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. But once we're saved, that necessarily manifests itself in good works and service to the King of King and Lord of Lords. Fourth, we have this idea that the gospel is entrusted to apostolic figures. I mentioned this last week, and this is really important because Understanding the role of an apostle in locking down the gospel, one who had seen the risen Christ, helps to actually keep the gospel stable. If, they're, if we're just kind of adding more and more apostles, theoretically, they can just keep adding, adding, adding to the gospel. They can start writing their own books, the Bible, adding to it, adding to it. But these were unique men in the early church that were given the privilege and responsibility to receive directly from God and then bind the church to the revelation that God had given to them. And what that means is that the gospel's not open to amendments. It's apostolic, it's supernatural, it's changeless. Listen to, to Paul's unique experience. <clears throat> this is not true of me, it's not true of you. We, God has given the church, now that it's established, teachers and preachers so that we can stay on track, but we're not, I'm not receiving direct revelation from God. I didn't write the book of Galatians this week. It's already there. I'm not an apostle. I'm a teacher and preacher of what God has already revealed to the apostles and prophets of old. But with Paul, he literally was receiving. He was like getting a, a daily download of revelation, which became scripture from God. So even after his conversion, this is halfway through verse 16, he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I didn't sign up for seminary. I didn't start going to a men's Bible study group. I didn't sign up for a discipleship group. He says, I didn't consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. By the way, one of the interesting things about scripture is it contains a lot of geographical references. And when you're reading it, you may not be thinking of a map. So you're like, oh, okay, so he, he went to place A, and then maybe the next day he went to place B. But these, these places are pretty far apart. There's a, a, there's a thousand kilometers between Arabia and Damascus. So this wasn't like a, a one-day journey. He was gone for a long, long, long time. He's walking a thousand kilometers there, a thousand kilometers back. So this is an extended period of time, a period of studying and spiritual maturity. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which is another word for Simon Peter, another, another uh, way of saying his name, and returned with him 15 days and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. So why is he telling us all this, that he, that he did not, he didn't go to seminary, he didn't see the other apostles to, to receive the gospel from them? Because he wants us to understand that he had heard directly from Christ. 
Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So Paul is emphasizing here that as an apostle, he's not bragging, but he wants his leaders to understand that his credentials and his training was bestowed upon him by God. And that meant that when an apostle spoke and when an apostle wrote, we need to listen. This isn't his own opinion. He was credentialed by, he was saved by God, he was credentialed by God, and he was taught by God. Now, some would read this and say, well, that's proof that in our day and age, we don't need teachers and preachers. I just sit in my library by myself with my Bible, and it's me and Jesus hanging out, and I don't need you, and I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Different era, folks. Just like God worked differently between the Old and New Testament, so God worked differently in the intertestamental period and the early New Testament period, and now. We have a closed canon of scripture and we teach from it and we preach from it, but ultimately God delivered it directly to the apostles and prophets of old and we need to pay attention to it. So if I say something that's contrary to apostolic teaching, you should challenge me. If you hear someone making things up, adding to the gospel contrary to apostolic teaching, you can say, actually, no, that doesn't square with Romans or the Gospel of Matthew or the book of Galatians. So we need to understand this. We need to defend the source of our authority. If we don't defend the source of our authority as Christians, the gospel eventually gets pretty mucky. We start adding to it and adapting it. And this is why you have the rise of Christian cults and you have people falling into false teaching because they've essentially stepped away from the Bible. So by defending, think about this, by defending the apostolic office, we defend the authority from which we derive the gospel. And because the gospel's all about grace, we're actually defending grace. If you don't do that, you end up with a gospel somehow rooted in works or human righteousness. So all of these points point to God's grace and a gospel that is not rooted in us, but is rooted in God's sovereign good pleasure. Now for a response. <clears throat> Let's rejoice in our conversions. Let's rejoice in our salvation. Let's give God all the credit for it. Anytime there's a little bit of pride or arrogance or self-righteousness that creeps into your mind, deal with it, repent of it. Let's, walk our, let's live our lives humbly, listen to this, humbly, confident, in what God has accomplished. Humility doesn't mean you're not confident. People might say, oh, you're very confident. You mean, that means you're prideful. No, you wanna be humbly confident, meaning taking no credit for it yourself, but confident in what, what God has accomplished and is continuing to accomplish and give him all the glory. Listen to how this passage ends. And they glorified God because of me. Not, and they came and patted me in the back and said, wow, Paul, you're an apostle. Can I have your signature? But even as he talks about what God had done in his life, it's all vertical. It's all to give glory to God. This is the mission of our lives. The mission of God is the glory of God. Even in our salvation, God receives glory. That's why he saves us 
because of his sovereign love, but also because he rightly demands and deserves our glory. So folks, God saved David Berkowitz. Did he still have to be punished for his actions? Of course. He has saved your neighbors. He, can, he has saved us. He can save abortionists. He can save tyrants. can save dictators and murderers and corrupt court justices and corrupt police. And he can also save leaders of corrupt religions. So let's continue to pray that God would do that, that he would do a mighty work in our world. We should have hope for the lost generation within which we live. We should rejoice in our own conversion and serve him as best as we can. I want to end by reading for you one verse from Psalm 51, which just kind of summarizes what we're asking God to do. And that is rejoice, restore to me the joy of your salvation. The the psalmist writes, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Let's pray that the Lord would re-energize us and revive us and restore us to acknowledge how beautiful of a gift we have. If you've been saved for a long time, you might start forgetting about it. But let's be reminded about the beautiful gift that God has given to us. And then let's ask him to sustain within us a willing spirit to worship him and to serve him. And let's preach the gospel boldly into a wicked and perverse generation. We're the church. If the church gets the gospel wrong, where are people gonna go? So we need to make sure we get the gospel right. And if we get the gospel right and we don't preach the gospel, how are they gonna hear? So it's critically important that we're, we recenter ourselves regularly on the gospel and share it diligently and trust that the Lord will do an amazing work as a result. Be encouraged by these words. 